the podcast for the inquisitive diver. Well, if you just tuned in, we're talking to Gareth Locke and um, his young Padawan, Mike. Uh, <laughs> both the guys have been on the show before and um, both are massive advocates and leaders in the dive business of human factors. And I've just been doing two days course with them and it's been rather fun and rather tiring at the same time. However, um, Gareth was last on the show, I think it's almost two years ago. Really? Wow. I think so. Wow. So I think you might have to uh, reintroduce yourself. Okay, yeah. So um, Tim Gareth, Gareth Locke, uh, UK-based, uh, 25 years in the Air Force, left in February 15, um, varied career, um, and started teaching human factors and diving shortly afterwards in the oil and gas industry. Bottom fell out of the market, and at that sort of time I was getting involved in diving as well. So I was like, hang on a minute, there's, a, there's an opportunity here because diving doesn't have anything to do with human factors, not formally anyway. There might be some sort of casual, informal stuff that's taught. Yeah. And that's when I set up the Human Diver in January 2016. Um, and it was to run a variety of online and face-to-face programs. Uh, and since then, nearly 500 people trained on face-to-face and more than 2,000 people online. Wrote a book, got the idea out there, you know, to get the, the sort of concept in easily digestible format. And then put it together, a, um, a documentary called If Only, which was really about trying to tell a story through the the lens of human factors and just culture of a a tragic diving accident in Hawaii um, and get people to think differently about how and why adverse events occur. Nobody gets up in the the morning and says, you know what, today's a great day to die, to get bent, to lose a student, to get separated or anything else like that. It's understanding how that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's it's been a fantastic journey. And I've I've loved everything that's going there, and it, it's about growing that, and that's what, you know, Mike's one of the, the sort of future instructors for the human diver, mm. um, because I can't be everywhere, and, and there is a need for this out there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, Mike, um, nice little crossover there, Gareth, thank you very much. Um, Mike, um, why do you bring everyone up to speed on who you are? I know it's very recent that you've been on the uh, episode, uh, on the season, earlier in the season. In fact, you opened the season, didn't you? I did, yeah. Yeah. Start of this year. Yeah. Quick recap on me then. So a bit like everyone else in this room, I'm also ex-Royal Air Force. I did uh, 20 years left only two years ago and uh, moved out to Australia. And I now work for the Australian Air Force, teaching their youngsters to fly fly jets. I have been an active diver for about seven years, I guess now, maybe slightly longer. Um, and I came across the human diver uh, about four or five years ago. And I thought, wow, this is brilliant. This is exactly what, I, what I'm interested in because the factors like we talk about human factors are um, generic in nature specific in application and human factors in aviation which is what I've lived and breathed for so many years are completely relevant to to the world of diving so I came across the human diver and I thought this is cool I want more of this I want to be involved in this Mm. Um, got in touch with Gareth we built up a bit of a rapport uh, and then started the instructor um, training pipeline a couple of years ago and here we are today finally the borders have allowed Gareth to come to Australia and complete my training Um, so this weekend is what that's all about and I'm now going to be hopefully taking the reins and taking the human diver or human factors in diving forward, you know, via the human diver in this part of the world. That's what it's all about for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, what about, um, I mean, there's people still going to be listening to it going, okay, human factors, I've heard a lot of words there. What the hell is it still? I mean, in, in layman's terms, how would, how would you put it? Treat me like I'm nine-year-old, Gareth. Right. What so is human re- factors? Human factors, it's how you would interact, you know, sort of technical bit. I'll try and make it simplified. Um, 
how you would interact with other people, how you do interact with the environment, how you'd interact with equipment. Uh, it might be about procedures or processes. And it's also how you think and process information yourself. So there's this sort of interaction or intersection of what goes on. Now, you could simplify it as saying it's how to make it easier to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing. And this goes to Mike's point of general in nature and specific in application. It's about how to make it easier to make the correct decision, how to make it easier to communicate clearly so that you understand what I'm trying to say, or how, to, how I'm able to pay attention to what's going on around me, recognizing the limitations of my attention abilities. You know, we can't pay attention to everything all the time. Mm. So human factors is, is really a, a very broad area. Um, and what we focus on in the human diver is, you know, we, we talk about generally about these things, but then it's about how to build teams effectively, how to create psychological safety. So it's okay to, to talk about the mistakes we make and learn from those. Um, it's about situation awareness and understanding what's going on around me and, and what's likely to happen next based on our experiences. Mm. Um, and so there's, there's lots of things that go into this. Um, it's, it's a fascinating topic. And, and anybody who gets up involved in it and they understand it and they come through the class there's a lot of blinkers come off and you go, oh, wow. And, and that's the real joy of this mm. is the, the the light bulbs that you see come on in the classroom and go, oh, so that's why I made that decision that way. This is what I can do to help shape that so it's a better decision in the future. Mm. I think one of the um, key elements that struck with me is that Human Factors approaches those awkward situations and scenarios uh, um, such as fears from student to instructor so if, if I give you the scenario that I as the instructor are teaching six brand new people to learn how to dive on an open water course everything I say to them is going to be gospel because they're assuming that everything I say is correct no one's really questioning it mm. and human factors is, is actually looking at, at that kind of scenario or as a scenario, um, and opening up the door to allow the freedom of movement and communication up and down the chain, regardless of the situation. Totally. And it's, and it's this, you know, often what would normally happen is you turn around and say, those students need to speak up. You need to develop a speak up culture so that if they've got a concern, then they're able to speak up. Mm. And actually the, the human factors approach turned around and said, it's about developing the leadership so that they're approachable, they're vulnerable, that they've created the environment so it's easier to speak up. And that's one of the, the, the sort of historical side of, of human factors or crew resource management aviation was this thing of an authority gradient where you would have experienced captains and inexperienced or junior co-pilots or flight engineers and they were unable to challenge what was going on. And initially they would just say, well, it's pilot error, stupid pilots, you know. And it wasn't until they started to look at the cockpit voice recorders and say, you know what, these guys knew that there was something there but they were unable to speak up. So the initial bits was all about assertion and defeating this um, authority gradient so that those who were lower down didn't need to step up quite so far. So in fact, the, the leader is bringing themselves down to a level that's closer to them, be more approachable, so that actually if there's an issue, you don't have to have quite so much bravery or courage to speak up because there, there isn't anything. If you speak up and nothing happens, you know, it doesn't, you, know you don't get something, something goes wrong. It's, it's not a major issue. So creating that environment is, is a key part of developing teams through, 
these non-technical skills and human factors. Mm. Mm. Now it's my turn to say something. You can talk as much <laughs> as you want, mate. <laughs> uh, it, it's one of the <laughs> I did that on purpose there because it's one of the things that as soon as people come into the studio or even online, when there's a pause and there's a bit of silence, you can see the it's like the rabbit in the headlight. Should we be talking? We should be talking now. And it doesn't matter because we're editing. We can edit. Yes, I thought you might come back yeah. to that. Yeah, that's useful. <laughs> <laughs> I think a story is is fantastic way of... Do you want to talk about the Linnea Mills case? Can do. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Okay. So um, the Linnea Mills case, if people haven't seen it on Facebook, uh, a young lady, teenager, tragically lost her life in uh, Montana back end of 2020. 2020 so about a year and a half ago and the stories that came out on social media in the aftermath were incredibly scathing of the um uh, the instructor some of them are the dive team the dive shop that the instructor works for even you know paddy and there was the prosecution's case as it were even was trying to um, have a go at the a woman who sold the, the, the Linnea her dry suit mm. despite the fact that it's you know I'm just selling you a dry suit it's not really any of any of my business but either way they, they really did try and go to town um, <clears throat> and understandably the the evidence that was out there on social media was from the the prosecution's point of view as it were so it was incredibly scathing of those that were deemed to be responsible for um for this young lady's death mm. uh, and undoubtedly they had a part to play that's fine this is all part of what it's all about but it's important if we want to really draw lessons out of this and move forward to try and make sure it doesn't happen again is have as open as we can conversations with the other people that are involved the instructor the rest of the dive team the shop owners should we uh, before we go any further should we um, describe the scenario, the situation, the circumstances that led to. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, try and do it from you know, sort of best of my memory of a um, an adventure di- or a, an advanced open water and the doing a dry suit speciality. The dry suit um, connection or the, the valve, the nipple for that didn't match the hose that was on the equipment that was being rented from the dive shop. Mm. So there was an inability to provide buoyancy or. A pressure equalization inside the uh, the dry suit um, lots of time pressures uh, end of a day in a, uh, a, a glacier national park mm. um, and there was a a bit of basically sticking a massive amount of lead on this young diver um, and then zipping some of that lead into the dry suit pockets so it's not ditchable um, Diver starts to descend and has got no way of really controlling their buoyancy. I believe she was on a slope on the side of the mm. yeah, um, and the there's just not enough lift to control the amount of lead that was in there, and she ended up sinking mm. um, and, and, and drowning as a consequence. And you know, a really tragic situation. And you know, sort of touched on earlier is nobody would have gone to that dive site to say, you know what, it's a great day to to end up killing a student because mm. that's not what happens you know people will be trying to operate against the pressures that they're under commercial pressures time pressures um the need to generate revenue um when people come into the shop and you sit there going well that's the that's the only client we've had for a while you know maybe not what we want but we'll take it on anyway Mm. and this is the point that mike was saying is it's understanding that backstory We, we hear something called a first story which is the one that normally hits social media or gets told and we we it's easy to point fingers and say oh they should have done this and they could have done that these counterfactuals that exist that 
you know, we tell but don't tell a story that really exists. Mm. If we genuinely want to learn, we've got to go to something called the second story. What's the background? What's the context? You know, understanding what normal looks like for a dive shop um, that is struggling potentially in terms of revenue, in terms of the skill sets of the instructors. Have they ever been in that sort of situation before? And the real difficulty we face in terms of learning is that second story that allows us to learn is also the evidence that would be used by a prosecution to blame. So you're in this real sort of difficult situation that says you can either learn or you can blame. And and we might say learning would happen anyway when we have a you know a lawsuit or a litigation because people would say don't do that don't do that don't do that. Well we already know that we shouldn't do that that that. Yeah. What we need to understand is better understand is the conditions that are leading to that Mm. you know what in terms of competence and experience what is it that's making sense for that person to do what they did Mm. you know uh, had they ever encountered this situation before if we're in novel situations we make the best guess we can based on our previous experiences and it might be that we've done that before and nothing's gone wrong Mm. therefore we sort of validated a poor decision but poor in this sense is only really definable after the event. Because if it if we do something that we think is good, it meets the goals, we get rewarded, you know, we pass people on a class, we don't necessarily do all the skills that they're supposed to, but they div- they, they sort of demonstrate mastery, whatever mastery means. <laughs> um, and, and so you end up with this successful outcome, they appear to be successful, even though you've sort of bent, modified the rules to get the thing done, you set a standard and you say, well, that works. And then we end up socially accepting that sort of deviation. Mm. And then that goes in as your next baseline. And you sit there and go, you know what? We cut the corner the last time. And we all agreed that that was okay. So let's move on and we'll try that again. Mm. And that's the difficulty is what does normal look like? Because if normal is really difficult to do and we, th- there's these sort of deviations because they're socially acceptable, accidents happen as deviations from normal not from standards. Now, in a good, well-funded, well-trained organization, standards and normal are pretty close. But if there are lots of conflicts that are there, normal and standards may be very different. And we have to understand what normal looks like, even if we don't have accidents, because that's where the learning happens. Yeah, yeah. And given, given the sport that we do as well and the variety of locations where people can go diving, that standard... You know whether it's delivered by whatever agency, RAID, SSI, Paddy, Nowy, Aussie, Seamus. That standard isn't going to say it's not going to give details on how you can teach on a, you know, a lake that's tidal or mm. you know it's below temperature and two thousand meters up. Um, There's often a lot of variables thrown in there deliberately, perhaps from the agencies to give instructors left to right of arc. Mm. Paddy have the. Um, conduct these dives in swimming pool like conditions um, yeah and it's just and that that was raised in a, in a uh, as a part of the case again for, with, with an AMLs it's like well what does that actually mean and it's like well that's a fair question perhaps what does that actually mean and it's open to interpretation which is a good thing in the sense that it allows you know dive centers instructors a bit of left and right of arc to achieve their aims mm. but it does there's a lot of gray in there yeah. which is managed at you know, instructor diver level. And then it's only when something perhaps goes wrong and they'll be like, <clears throat> okay, so you had to, 
you were supposed to be doing this dive in swimming pool-like conditions. Well, yeah, I thought they were swimming pool-like conditions. Well, I thought they weren't. Okay, well, who's right and who's wrong? And it can be mm. very difficult and owned and judged often with the benefit of hindsight and often after something's gone wrong rather than when something's gone right, but they've but someone's thought, do you know what? We need to look at this from a proactive point of view. Maybe we shouldn't be doing this again. We've been lucky so far. Mm. And that doesn't tend to happen. Diving is very outcome-biased. Um, things are going right. In that case, everything's fine. And, you know, as Gareth said, you will dive or, or do a course and you're kind of edge closer and closer towards a marginal boundary that you don't even know is there and then all of a sudden you do a dive do, run a course something goes wrong you, you lose a student um figuratively rather than you know fatally and uh, and you just think oh well it's been fine up until now but actually you've just gone over a boundary that with when you look back at what swimming pool like conditions were originally when you first started diving you've gone a long way from what somebody else a complete novice perhaps would identify swimming pool like conditions in that particular example yeah and you have got that element of you know for example a new dm or a new instructor moves to a new location mm. and is just following the norm of the operation that they're going to especially if they're a, a newcomer to the industry as well yeah and don't know any better um for me personally i've been i've, I've been employed by a location out in papua new guinea and um uh, i was to be teaching an open water course and i was like okay so where do you do your confined sessions oh, it's over there on the beach get out of it um there's no way on god's green earth was that ever going to be pool like conditions and um you know i was told well it's it's always been done over there well, well not anymore pal <laughs> and that, <laughs> we that's need the, another yeah. solution and that's the social acceptance bit and the difficulty is that is you know you've got that sort of confidence the knowledge to turn around to the dive center manager and say eh, it ain't happening yeah. but if you end up as a sort of a junior instructor coming in there inexperienced yeah. and it's like do you want this job or not yeah uh yeah i do right crack on that's mm. what we're doing yeah mm. how do i do this and and so you're you, there becomes that social acceptance of what's going on and social conformance is incredibly powerful i mean simple bits like you know th this evening of crossing the road when the lights are, you know, the pedestrian red light is red, but the norm is others. Oh, they're crossing it, therefore I'm going to do it. Yeah. And people go, but that doesn't apply to diving. It's like, oh, yes, it does. You know, the fact that the instructor may not do pre-dive checks. And so the students look up and go, hey, cool. When you get good enough to be an instructor, you don't have to do pre-dive checks because mm -hmm. they don't do it. And so there's that bit of the role modeling that, it's quite easy to drift into norm, which is suboptimal. And then other people, you know, focus and see what's going on. You go, that's good. You know, I don't have to do the checks because mm -hmm. they don't do one. And you might sit there as, a, as, a, as an instructor and leader in, in your environment and go, why do I do this? I know I'm not going to make mistakes. You say, how do you know you're not going to make a mistake? How do you know you're not going to, you know, forget something? Yeah. You don't. Yeah. You can never know with 100% certainty what the future looks like. I never know how much I'm borrowing from safety when I'm deviating from standards until the point that Mike says, you know, this boundary, and you step over and go, huh? that's where it was. <laughs> but you don't know, because if you did, you would operate right next to it, and then you stop yourself from making mistakes. But yeah. that's, you know, that's not how human nature works. Unfortunately. So um, what's uh, what's upcoming for you? Because you're only here for you know here for another couple of days to yeah. to let Mike loose on Australia. Got what's the plans? 
And yeah, then- so, uh, yep, go back in a couple of days, have some time with the family, uh, and then I'm off to the States to run two classes in Plano, Texas, come back from that. And then uh, I'm coming back out for Oztech in Melbourne. Uh, I'm running a class a couple of days before Oztech and then running a presentation uh, on incident reporting systems and investigation processes. Uh, and then Mike and I have got a stand on the floor at Oztech as well. So you can come and see both of us. Uh, and we'll be talking about human factors and stuff there. Yeah. Oh, I'll be there. I've got the message this afternoon that the missus has already booked the hotel for us. So we're in. Awesome. Perfect. Yeah. So get pub fit. <laughs> <laughs> I would have told my wife as well in that case she's coming down as well so <laughs> tell her to get pub fit as well I bet yeah. she's more pub fit than you actually uh, it, it depends Sometimes, yeah <laughs> we've just recently had a holiday in Europe and we both ended up very pub fit after that <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mike it was a really important holiday what it was, was really it about important, right? well before the holiday she was my fiance after the holiday she became my wife so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a big congratulations deal. mate thank you yeah. and, and for yourself Mike what's what's happening after you know, you're certified and let loose. Have you got any plans yet? Well, the idea is to uh, to move forward with more face-to-face classes in this country or this part of the world. Um, I've, I'm re- I've reached out to a few or I've had a few dive agencies, individuals reach out to me and with a view to running a course. So I'm just trying to tap into those people and see what we can, uh, what we can sort out. I'd like to keep going while the material is, is fresh in my mind. Mm. My aim is to kind of run half a dozen courses a year I think one every two months that'd be good uh, in this country and uh, well in the, in, in the vicinity I suppose you know New Zealand Southeast Asia etc yeah. so that's what I'm looking at from the two day class point of view um, also we are looking at a one day class option so Matthias Smith who is the chairman of the Victorian Sabacqua group mm-hmm. he's uh, also a very keen advocate of um, the human diver and what we do and human factors in diving he came up with the idea a couple of months ago perhaps of a, a one day class in, in, to kind of fill a bit of a gap because we've got the the essentials class um, which is sort of online um, one way learning as it were then there's the uh, level one which is a 10 week webinar session with just teaching one and a half hours a week of a bit more in depth with the theory and then there's the there's the face-to-face class which you've obviously just done this weekend or this this last two days matt what we want to try and do is explore the option of a a one-day class and the idea of that is to have maybe 10 15 20 people um in a room and uh me presenting some of the theory to them but also having to go at some practical exercises with just some simple communication stuff chenga other things that we're working on to just get some limited practical application of, of the theory in mind so and the idea is that that's going to be um partially funded as well by um, a safety organization in this country uh and if that goes well then we'll look at taking it forward taking it around the rest of australia even potentially outside the country just with a um it's it's, it's a it's a less it's a smaller financial commitment i think is one of the big things so the two-day class is uh is just shy of 900 dollars. Mm-hmm. it's I, I mean what do you think good value for money uh, I'd pay double. They, I'm not going to pay double now. I've done it. But. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. It's one of those big things with 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 uh, with human factors in diving. It's like, well, what does how much is this class worth? And it's like, it's more of the how much value is there in the training? Because it's not like a technical course. You know, you go and do a a rescue diver course and it costs you X number of hundreds of dollars. Okay. And after that, I have a rescue diver qualification. Mm. You don't get a, I'm now a qualified human factors in diving participant. It's just the course gives you so much information and 
just you know thoughts ideas to take forward to develop your own diving but it's 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 there's a lot of value in it it's just not necessarily easy to to put a price on um mm. Anyway, but the idea is that uh, the one-day class will be a lot less than that, a lot less interactive, certainly for, on individual purpose. They won't have a go at the Gemisim software, which is where I'm sure you'd agree a huge, a huge amount of learning comes out. Yeah. But, the um, yeah, we're going to have a go at this one-day class and see if that can get more people interested in, in human factors in diving in this country mm. uh, to just help get the message out there. Yeah, and, and you know, touching on the two days that I've just done with you guys, and I did the Essentials class online before um, while I was in the U.K., and what I've taken out of the last two days and, you know, people who are interested in possibly doing it as well is that, in my opinion, human factors um, kind of opens your eyes to um, that inner, that, that, those inner thoughts. It, it gives them a little bit of a pathway to come out, whether that be pen and pencil or verbally. Um, but it opens uh, opens up your eyes. It opens up the doors and the confidence. I, I should imagine there's quite a few people out there that might be lacking the confidence to chirp up when needed. And I think just in this last two days, um, there'll be people in that classroom that that will chirp up mm. um, where you wouldn't ever expect them to. And I think that is a, a, a fantastic learning. You, know, I, you can't get better than that, especially when we're looking at you know safety scenarios. And on the safety side of things, people that get into the norm, the instructors, the dive masters that do get into their norm and the situations that are seen as normal locally might not even see um, mm. a safety issue. And you coming in as someone who's just done, just done two days with Mike Mason or Gareth Locke, all of a sudden you're seeing these little alarm bells going off all over the place. And I've not experienced it yet because I've literally just finished the course today. But I can guarantee you I've seen it before. And I can guarantee you I'm going to see it again. Um, I can't put enough emphasis on how much people should do this course, mm. quite frankly. And it's such a hard thing because it's a really cliched statement, you know, especially the two-day course, mm. that you get out what you put in. And, and it's it's not a... It's not a tangible training course that says, Matt, you're going to learn how to do this. You know, it's like trim, buoyancy, propulsion, laying line, using a rebreather, using a camera. Mm. It's more about coaching and facilitation and what your goals are that you want to get out of this. Mm. And and myself and Mike and the other human diver instructors is facilitating that, facilitating that and putting you in difficult, stressful, problematic conditions and, and holding you at that sort of uncomfortable place, the, mm. the sort of when it comes to the stretch zone for learning, and, and you sort of finish the forty-five minute mission and go, "How was it? Did, did that go in forty-five minutes? <laughs> really? Wow!" And then sit down for another forty-five, fifty minutes and debrief it, and pull the learning out and get you say, "Okay, Matt, what's your key takeaway from this? What are you going to learn? What have you learned from that mission that you're then going to apply to your own diving? Mm. And what you learn as an individual will be different to somebody else in the class and somebody else in the class. And when we run another class like we're running in, you know, starting tomorrow, Mike's going to run. The learning that comes out of that will be different for each one of those individuals. And so when somebody goes, what am I going to get out of it? I go, I don't know. Yeah. Because here's the general bit of human factors. And we're going to nuance and nudge and point you in certain directions, and you're going to get the specific learning. Yeah. And, and that means that people who've got you know a growth mindset, they want to improve, they want to get better, 
they're the ideal candidates for this. Yeah, it, it's not a box ticking exercise. And you know, to this bit of what does it allow me to do? Does it allow me to go deeper? Use a bit of equipment? You know, different gases. Eh. What it does allow you to do is use the bit between your ears that you take with you on every dive differently and looking at things from a risk aware point of view it's not about risk um uh, aversion mm. it's about understanding we're operating in an inherently hazardous environment and you sit there and go how do i make this as safe as possible so that even when the proverbial hits the fan it doesn't end up as a fatal situation mm. that you can actually fail safely in that environment yeah yeah and the fact that i mean just to paint the picture as well you know that in the course we, we've talked about gem gemasim gem gemsin um it's literally a two laptops back to back one team one side one team the other side and you you've literally got split information and you're all trying to complete a task and this task in particular is flying a spaceship around all over the screen um with you know landing on planets and going through waypoints and dodging wormholes and god knows what else um and problems occur and then you know people might get injured or lose their voice and they can't communicate etc et so it's putting those stresses in there to see how you can operate as a team to get the objective done or the tasks done and then the most important thing out of it is like gareth just alluded to that you do that for 40 45 minutes and do the the feedback for another 45 50 minutes however long it takes but that, for me, is the, the the most important bit as well, because you're getting not only looking at, at yourself and how you operated, but you're learning from what the other people have picked up on themselves as well. Um, it's I, I I I can't I can't fathom how much learning I've done in the last mm. it, twenty hours of being in a classroom. It's remarkable, and hopefully you'll find that this is almost like the a, a foundation of. Um, not a, it's not going to be necessarily a completely revolutionary way of thinking, but it will enable you to look at things differently, slightly mm. differently, completely differently, depending on the context. And you'll that learning will be kind of ongoing. You know, we, Gareth and I are here to to help people um, talk about things as uh, specific situations when they see them. Mm. But ultimately, the stuff you've taken from um, the last couple of days, you've learnt, or you think you've learnt some stuff now, and you have. But you'll go into a diving situation in tomorrow a week six months two years and you'll think oh i'll, I'll think about that or i'm thinking about that about that a slightly different way now so the mm. learning kind of carries on which is you could argue that happens with technical skills as well you know how to use a how to use a rebreather how to just get better at buoyancy and trim and stuff mm. but from a non-technical skills point of view it's so much more diverse than that and you can um approach things in so many different ways and it also um <clears throat> While it helps your own learning, it enables you to become uh, hopefully a far better team member or, mm. or leader, um, and that will enable learning across the whole spectrum as well. It's just the sort of you know the thin end of the wedge, and the idea is that by t taking this course, yes, other people we want to take the course as well for their own learning because you you learn best by your own experiences and your own immersion in these things. But by you taking the course, Matt, you will go to other people and say, oh, have you thought about doing this that way? And they'll go, oh, no, well, where did you get that from? Where's, where's that idea from? And you'll say, oh, mm -hmm. well, it's from the human factors in diving class. And mm -hmm. they'll be like, oh, that sounds brilliant. And so the learning will go on that way as well. So yeah. it's, it's not just about learning now, what you've learned in the last two days. That learning will, will go on and will hopefully spread to other people as well. Yeah. When I first came in contact with human factors over, t well, it must be 13, 14 years ago now, 
back in the Air Force days. Mm. So I was going through the class, and I'm sure Gareth caught me smoking a few times at you know the keywords, and it was just flashbacks to to back then. And we were we were having lunch today, actually. <coughs> Excuse me. And I mentioned that it's um, you know it, it's as though the dive industry is 30 years behind where we were in the in the Air Force. Very much so. And I, I kind of see human factors as the um, like the safety officer of of the dive industry, as in there should be someone at, at most, if not all, operations around the world that have an understanding of human factors, so that they can, you know, kind of conduct the way things occur within that environment to make sure or to minimise any kind of problems that come up. And I think that's a really, it, it's a bit a key point to bit on there, a key point to pick up on there is that often when people think about safety officers, it's about compliance. Yeah. And and as long as you've got all the rules and processes and procedures, people follow those, we'll be safe. Yeah. You go, well, you can never write a safety manual that meets the real world. Mm. You know, I'm going to make up some numbers. A safety manual might only cover 60%, 70% of the task. And the rest of that is filled in by people's experience. Mm. And the idea of somebody who's going to be involved in sort of the human factors aspects is trying to close the gap between workers imagine what's written down mm-hmm. and workers done. Mm. And that's the risk piece. And it was great to have, you know, a dive center manager, Andrew Hunter, on the class yeah. just saying, actually, I've embraced this. And I'm going back and I'm going to say, right, you know, I'm going to change my leadership style, my interaction style, because I recognize that I need to delegate more to my teams. Mm-hmm. And now I need to create an environment where they come back to me and say, you know what, this isn't working because of X, Y, and Z. Can we try that? Mm. And that's that that gap that says I'm going to close between what's written down and, and what's actually done. And yeah. so just turning around and saying to people, you have to be compliant because you'll be safe. You're missing a whole bunch of the real world out there that people create safety. People, you know, safety is or lack of safety is not down to stupid individuals that need to be told to get back into their place. You know, it's, it's not about those unruly individuals that, that have to be constrained. Safety is created by people who are closing that gap, given the goals and the offsets they have to do all the time. And they sit and they go, right, the, weather's a, the, the weather conditions are rubbish. You know, you talk about the swimming pool conditions, mm-hmm. and you go sit there, well, actually, I'm going to move the dive site somewhere else because I know that actually it might not be um, as great visibility, but the current's less. Mm. So the people, you know, I might go to the clearer bit, but the current's stronger. So how do I manage this? And, and it's about those trade-offs that happen all the time. So thinking much bigger of what that safety officer type thing, you know, that role is about is mm. understanding the gap between work is imagined and work is done and then providing feedback to others because the lessons that might be learned in this, you know, in Sydney, are the same lessons that could be learned in Melbourne, in Adelaide, up in Cairns, in Palau, truck. We're all human. We're all wired broadly the same way. Yeah. And so we behave broadly the same way. And that's one of the difficulties that I've had as a feedback is the problem with trying to bring human factors into diving is human factors. Because you turn around and go, I wouldn't make that decision. Yeah. I would be different. You go... That's a known bias. Yes, you would, because we can create those conditions where you make the same mistakes, which is why when we run these classes, 
the behaviors are broadly the same. And we yeah. put the injects in and people fail in broadly the same way. And we bring them out in the debrief and they go, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. And you sit and across the room as the instructors go, well, we did, because <laughs> we were expecting that to happen because people behave that way. Yeah. It's about having that open mind to says, you know what, I'm going to change because what I'm doing isn't working out. We've reached a, a safety plateau when it comes to the number of fatalities or serious injuries. Compliance is not going to change that. Mm. It's about going one step further, which is about taking a human factors perspective. And on a, on a bigger scale, human factors could actually bridge the gap between all the agencies having their own databases of incidents and, and faults and flaws and, and actually create a real database that everybody could learn from. Yeah, totally. I mean, in, in the US, we've got aviation world. NASA runs the aviation safety reporting system. Mm. In the UK, there's something called Confidential Human Factors Reporting Incident Program, CHIRP. And those are independent bodies that collate information from operators, from carriers. And, and there is a level of protection provided because this is safety information. Mm. And that information is then analyzed, it's processed, it's shared. And that's really what my presentation at Oztech is going to be about is here is how something could operate in the diving space. Mm. And, and it would need to be funded, need to be resourced, it need to be trained. Because the way that incidents are investigated in the diving industry at the moment is normally by lawyers or law enforcement. And that's it. And yeah. neither of those two are really interested in learning. Um, you know, the law enforcement is about foul play and, did, you know, was there anything wrong? And the lawyers are often about how do I support my claim? And, and that isn't about understanding the context. It's about trying to close that, that claim. So mm. having something that is structured, that is that people can use and it has to be usable as well it has to have low friction then we can start to understand the problem lack of data doesn't mean lack of a problem mm. and there is definitely a lack of data oh totally totally for a whole bunch of reasons unfortunately something else i'd like to touch on is we tend to focus uh not wrongly but human factors tends to be focused on safety and improving safety and what have you uh, a big part of it for me and what I try and get across to people is that if you um, can take you know a human factors point of view of things, it can really make your diving much more fun and much more rewarding as well. Consider a fun dive. If you uh, you turn up to, for example, Fly Point near where I um, mm -hmm. you know where I do a lot of my diving in um, in Port Stephens. So you go on the Facebook Buddy Finder group and there's half a dozen of you going to do a dive and you rock up and it's just a bit like, right, uh, well, who's who's the most experienced diver? Oh, yeah, um, John, yeah, you, you can lead this dive. We'll just follow you around and John will say, OK, well, we'll just go down here. We'll go down to the 10 metre shelf. We'll, we'll turn left. We're going to have a look at some stuff um, and then we'll just get out. Sound good? Yep. Yeah, OK, that sounds good. Yep. Yeah. And you get in and the visibility might might be good, might be bad. And you might get separated, as has happened several times to me with various buddy finder groups. And you just think, right, OK, what's this all about? And if you adopt a kind of a human factors mindset, you can and it hasn't got to be like laborious or tedious. But if you just have a, a chat beforehand, what do people want to get out of this dive? Do, are people looking to try and find a specific nudie branch? Does anybody want to find a, you know, a blue lined octopus? There's, there's some cool stuff to see here. Mm. What are people looking for? So if I find one, I can get your attention and it will make your dive better. You will get more out of your dive. Do people 
um, want to get experience at leading. You know, if you want, you can lead this dive, and I'll and I'll follow you as somebody who's seen it several times before, and I'll just make sure you stay on the straight and narrow. Do, do people want to do a longer dive, a shorter dive, deeper, shallower? Get video, get photos. What do people want to get out of the dive? Mm. And because in my experience. You know, and that's all largely part of communication and teamwork and things that, that comes into a lot of what we do at the Human Diver. Because that's not really culturally normal in the fun diving world, it just doesn't happen. And people go diving and they have a good time. But I think if we try and encourage a human diver or sorry, human factors um, thought process with, with those sort of fun diving environments, it, it would be safer, yes, but it would also be a lot more fun. People would just get more out of their dives by yeah. having that kind of attitude to, mm-hmm. um, to their fun diving. Yeah, I think I was going to say on on that sort of the decision making piece. You know, we had a couple of classic examples in the training in the last couple of days of defining what the end point of the mission was or the go no go point. <laughs> yeah. and and that you know when there were lots of things going on and you know the world's falling around your ears because it's all going horribly wrong. Somebody be able to pipe up and say, right, twenty seven minutes, we're going to make a decision to go home or not. And, and that, you know, to draw the parallel with diving is, yeah, what we'll do is jump in and we'll end up with 50 bar on the surface. Mm. Yeah, okay, 50 bar in what size cylinder, from what depth, you know, what does that mean? And, and because that uncertainty, though, that gray area, it makes it much harder for people to go, uh, I'm not quite sure, can I thumb this now? And so there are people who, are, who I've got, you know, stories come back to me going, you know what? I wish I'd said something at that stage, mm. but I felt uncomfortable because I didn't know the dynamic. I didn't really know where the, the line in the sand was drawn. And there is this assumption as well, you're a certified diver. You know how to manage your gas. You know, well, maybe not. You know, and, and it's that piece to, to stop people having, I'm going to say, safe, scary moments. You know, it didn't end up as a serious injury. It didn't end up as a death. Yeah. But people get out of the water and go, you know, I didn't like that. Yeah. I don't want to do that. And if we want to retain people in the industry and keep it growing, we've got to make it an enjoyable sport. And the number of people that I spoke to went, no, I didn't like that because I got scared and I'm not going back to diving. It's like yeah. there's a tragedy that we have an inability to keep that person in the sport and expose them to the massive, beautiful underwater world we have. Yeah. I agree. Especially in this country. You know, there's a, there's a great deal to explore. Mm. Um, and fantastic shore diving. Something that's probably... I miss the wreck diving in the UK. I really enjoyed, you know, the opportunity to go and dive lots of different wrecks in mm. some, you know, interesting water. But um, in Australia, there's just so much awesome, accessible shore diving that it's... The rain this winter hasn't done any many favours. <laughs> I'll accept that. It's been torturous, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it has. Yeah, it has been frustrating. But not that notwithstanding, the weather has to be pretty bad to, to wipe out, you know, certainly the local shore diving sites mm-hmm. in Port Stephens, mm-hmm. which is great. It's accessible. Yeah, and there, and there are some awesome things to go and go and see. And you know, the underwater world is just fantastic. There's mm-hmm. so much to explore and enjoy. Mm-hmm. And if, with a human factors approach, I just think people can enjoy it more in a safer way. Yeah. And there's, there's the... the the other end of the scale as well. We've done a lot of talking about recreational diving, but I know, well, both of you are doing mm. CCR diving now. Mm-hmm. Um, Gareth, you're focused on the, the tech side of things, turning into a techie geek. Um, it, what <coughs> what does human factors look like in the tech world? Um, and, and, you know, taking human factors into tech, cave, CCR, instructor development, that's where I really started with a human diver because they're the, they're the activities that have got the, 
the greatest exposure to risk. You know, recreational diving and all goes wrong, you can come straight to the surface, not a problem. Oh, can you now? <laughs> <laughs> Depends how quick, but there's no overhead. You know, there's no physical or virtual overhead that's yeah. there or shouldn't be anyway. Yeah. Um, in the technical space, the consequences of making a mistake are much harder to recover. You know, you, you don't have that control Z or command Z button to undo and go, oh, because invariably you're boxed into a corner somewhere. Um, gas analysis becomes much more critical, teamwork becomes much more critical, looking out for each other. And that's one of the key areas, I think, where, you know, human factors can improve that safety and, and enjoyment is looking out for each other. We're never going to stop people making mistakes. That's just part of being a human. You know, we've got this variability of, in, of human performance. But what I can do is I can look out for you and you can look out for me. So if that you you know, you forget to do something like analyzing your gas or clipping stages in a certain direction or, or whatever it is, I can look over there and go, hey, Matt, did you note that that doesn't look quite right? It's like, oh, yeah, okay. And I've potentially stopped a major issue. Hmm. Um, and, you know, you talked about stories, if only as, as a, you know, a documentary I put together, which was a, a technical diving course. It was a rebreather training course in which the diver unfortunately died uh, by going hypoxic on the surface. Yeah. And that wasn't, you know, whilst it was a four-person student team on the back of the boat with an instructor, it was actually five individuals, you know, an instructor and five students who weren't working together. And, and I was really fortunate to work with the widow and the dive team to be able to tell their story, their second story. Mm. And you listen to, to Barbara, one of the, the, the divers, just sitting there going, I wanted to say something, but I couldn't. And, and, and I was just unable to, to voice my concerns because of her background of, of law enforcement and military. Mm. And it's like, well, we don't criticize in public. We criticize in private. Yeah. And the inability to challenge at that stage meant that Brian got off the boat with this, with this O2 cylinder turned off and the computer shut down and he went hypoxic and drowned. Mm. Um, and so the consequences in the technical space are much more severe when small errors start to accumulate, accumulate and cascade. And in hindsight, you go, oh, look at that. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Look at that. It was obvious. Yeah. But actually, it's not, because it is obvious people would stop it there and then. People are making that best guess as to what the future looks like. Same thing for cave diving. And cave diving, you know, huge history of learning from adverse events, you know, Sheck Exley's uh, Blueprint for Survival. And it would be really worthwhile looking at th those sorts of events and going, actually, let's look at a human factors approach. But as Mike just alluded to, the quality of data is really poor. Yeah. And so the ability to pull stories out and, you know, I have a, a sort of a project on that's been on the back burner for a while is, is to go through um, Stratis Cass's uh, Close Calls book and actually do a human factors analysis of each one of the stories that are in there. Yeah. Uh, and that would generate some data to say, you know what, this is real. It's not just some mumbo jumbo that's come from aviation or healthcare or oil and gas. There are genuine factors that are leading to adverse events. These are the conditions that are leading to near misses, accidents. So it is totally applicable to the higher end uh, space. Yeah, yeah. And how, how are you finding it? Are you, are you getting, uh, is it being well received from uh, the people that you dive with, Mike? Um, just being, I mean, Gareth is quite well known in the 
dive world for bringing on the human diver. And, mm-hmm. uh, I'm asking you because you're a, kind of the newbie of the human diver, but being the leader in Australia now. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've tried to um, you know un- understandably really bring in my human factors thoughts awareness I suppose training into my actual diving, mm. and I will um, <clears throat> when I'm doing I work casually as a dive master up in Port Stephens, and when I've done my dive master stuff, I'll ask my uh, customers for feedback, and a lot of the time they'll say, "No, great, had a good dive, thanks very much," and I'll be like, "Okay, fine. Well, if you do think of anything, please let me know." Yeah. But a couple of times I have had people. You know, just before they get off the boat, they'll say, do you know what? I did think of something, actually. I would have liked it if you'd done this differently or done that differently. And it's like, brilliant, great. I can take that forward for future reference. Mm. Um, I went diving with uh, a friend of mine, Joe. You, you know Joe Ryan's partner? Um, Joe McGregor, yep. Went, we did a, a dive in on New Year's Eve, actually, um, and it was her on her JJ, me on my AP. And just before, when we were on the boat on the way out, I just had a, we just had a, a bit of a chat about each other's kit mm. because she'd, I don't think she'd actually, she had dived with me on an AP. It was when she was only open circuit qualified and I hadn't seen a JJ much before. Um, and it was just a case of, right, well, what does your handset look like? And now, now JJ is a shearwater. I'm familiar with shearwater, but the AP is unique. So I sort of had a, a, said, this is an AP handset, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and we talked about, um, you know, emergent, how, how do you, how do, you do, do a dill flush and stuff like that? What, what's, what do the warning lights look like? So I know what to look for. Yeah. But then after the dive, while she commented that it was really good to dive with somebody who was so sort of thorough in their approach, which was great, she did say um, it would have been useful to have actually had a a more of an in-depth look into the handset to see exactly what to look for because it because we didn't actually do that and so that's again part of that feedback as part of a debrief where you can go oh brilliant so i can take that forward for the future um randomly just over a year ago i did a dive in uh, in perth just i was over there with work and went out on a dive boat um, and just got buddied up with a, a a random stranger as it were and he was actually training to be a dive master um and I was qualified at the time, and so we just got put together because they said, oh, well, this, this guy's training to be a dive master. You can take him diving. I was like, okay, sounds good. And before we went diving, I sat him down in, in a sort of quiet corner of the boat, and I said, right, you know, what do you want to get out of this dive? What's your experience? What what, what sort of um, training have you done? How's it all going so far? Yeah. And he was almost kind of a bit, I wouldn't say blown away, but he was a bit sort of sat back and was like, why are you asking me all these questions? <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 it was all quite open and quite nice. It wasn't, it was nothing defensive from him or outwardly hostile from me. Mm. But after, and we did two dives that day. And afterwards he was like, that was really good to go diving with somebody who, you know, had like a bit of a brief and, and took it a bit more, I wouldn't say seriously, but a, a more of a thorough approach mm. to, um, to what it's all about to get more out of it. And he, um, he got through his gas quite quickly because he was a relatively inexperienced dive, um, you know, dive master in training. Mm. Um, whereas I've got, I had more experience than him. So again, I just gave him some feedback on how he can work on um, uh, conserving his gas and not getting through it. And that's what that feedback process is all about. I haven't got all the answers, so I want people to give me feedback, whether it be fellow divers or customers. But I'm, I also would like to give other people feedback to improve their diving as well, because yeah. that's that's what it's all about. So in answer to your question, um, I think. Yeah, so far so good. The people that I dive with, I don't necessarily outwardly say, oh, I'm really into human factors um, and and dive safety. I just try and get the message across almost um, not subversively, but I will I will just do a thorough dive brief. I will make it clear that I haven't got all the answers. And if they see anything going wrong, please speak up. And afterwards, if there's something that did go wrong, I will talk about it and ask for feedback and provide feedback. And I might. Well, you know, if, if if the 
if my approach appears to be coming across well received, um, then I will talk about how I do have an interest in human factors. And oh, by the way, have you heard of the human diabetes? Because this is what we're all about. Mm. And I think it's really important and, and useful. And people go, yeah, that sounds good. So I'm just trying to get the message across by actions rather than just talking about the theory and trying to preach to people, yeah. which seems to be I, working. Well, I think I think your day job kind of helps you with being able to facilitate those kind of conversations because as a, you know, what we used to call it, just a jockey, uh, the dude at the front of the plane, um, you literally live your life by openly talking and communicating with each other and, and going through these awkward conversations, don't you? Yeah, that is a, a massive part of what we do. Um, and I, I try and make sure that's both ways as well. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm the instructor and I'm teaching students who are far more junior than me in terms of flying aeroplanes yeah. and who definitely don't know what they don't know. But it's important that afterwards during the debrief, it's like, OK, uh, how did that go? Not very well. Okay, why didn't it go well? What could I have done to help you as well? Because mm -hmm. I'm still, I've only been teaching the Australians for uh, just under a year now. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, there's just, there's things that I can do better as an instructor. Because it's, it's all about the student performing to the best of their ability. And I'm a massive part of that. So if I'm not doing my job to the best of my ability, I need to know so I can help them do their job to their best ability. And that is about those, like you said, open conversations, honest feedback, which sometimes will be a little bit harsh in the, in the military for better or for worse, we are used to um, potentially some quite harsh criticism. Yeah, It's quite normal. Um, I think I do a reasonable job of tempering that when I'm in my diving world, but it's difficult to tell because you revert to norms, especially when things can be under under pressure sometimes yeah. um, and you find yourself under stress. But overall, uh, yeah, I, I think that my military instru flying instructional job um, – helps me a lot with having a bit of empathy with divers and being able to just think about different ways of doing things. And conversely, my work in, in with the human diver has actually allowed me to, uh, or benefited me in my in my day job of, of teaching the students to fly. Because perhaps once upon a time, I'd have just been like, oh, that was stupid. You know, why did you do that? Whereas actually, I'll go like, mm, what were you thinking at the time to, to make you do that? Why did, what, made, what made you do that rather than what I wanted you to do? Mm. So look at those conditions and have a, a much more um, big picture approach and do, do you think that kind of process will help you spot it with other students if it was a similar scenario or is it something that you can kind of recall at a later date you know like um oh i'll try to think of an example now um if i walk across the road and i kick the curb it's uh it's one curb that's slightly higher than all the others then the next time i go i tend to walk around it or step higher so uh, a great example you know we're talking about this evening is down in bondi junction outside one of the pubs the um vip hotel it's just near the oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and 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 i you know i'm hypothesizing why they've done this but the tarmac for the pavement has been replaced by a whole bunch of rubberized tarmac pavement that's there now i'm guessing it's so that if there's any um physical violence outside because it's a drinking establishment then mm. people don't get thrown onto a concrete floor now the problem is when you're walking it looks exactly the same as another piece of, of tarmac so you're walking along your peripheral vision's going yeah 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 and then i just stumbled and i'm like what is this and it's like <laughs> it's a spongy floor that i'm walking on it's like a you, mini mattress yeah and it's just like what and then you walk along oh, okay right i'm now back on the hard concrete yeah and and so you know your peripheral vision it just looks like just normal tarmac mm. um and so you know i'm guessing that that's why it's been done that way 
But it also introduces another risk because it's not what you expect to happen. So now when I see this sort of the VIP hotel bar, whatever, it's like, oh, I know this. So you, you start to recognize little subtle cues that things aren't quite right. But you recognize patterns really quickly. You know, I've, I haven't been to Sydney for a while. But I now very quickly understand what the light sequence is for the traffic lights. You know, at a crossroads, you go, yep, yeah, that, 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 right, I can cross on this. Even though it's a, a red band showing, oh, me breaking rules, terrible. Um, <laughs> but I know that if it's red there, that means that's green. And there, there's no traffic going to cross this section. Um, so I can cross the road safely, yeah. although I might not be complying with, with the rules that are there. So we do pick up patterns very quickly. And sometimes that's very advantageous. Other times, it leads us down into a sort of false sense of security. Mm. Uh, and you miss important things. Um, and actually, you know, I'm going to say as an example, a diving example, where an SPG might... Um, not be decreasing at the rate it should do because there's a mechanical issue. It might be because the valve's not quite opened. Um, and well, a classic example on that's twin set. So the manifold um, isolator is either foot is shut or it's not quite fully open. Mm. And you know you go on a dive and you go, oh, that's cool. Don't know. Yes, yeah, it's going down. Oh, cool. My gas consumption is really good. It's not going down anywhere like it would normally do. <laughs> and, and, of course, you know, for, for sort of not non-technical divers, normally the manifold, the, the SPG is connected to the left cylinder or the left post. Uh, and so that's showing left cylinder contents. Mm. But the right post is where my primary long hose is coming from. And the contents of that cylinder are going down. But because the isolator is not open, the, the SPG is reading an incorrect pressure. Yeah. But I look at this and go, oh, that's cool. Oh, awesome. Awesome. <laughs> you know, I'm going to get loads out of this 50 guy. 50 minutes and I've only done 10 bar. <laughs> oh, man, that didn't work. Um, and so, it, you know, that's another piece of this understanding how we make decisions and how we create and make sense of the world mm. based on the data we've got and matching patterns previously. You could quite blindly just go, well, they should have paid attention to what's going on. But if you don't understand how that decision was made and how it's making sense, you might actually fix the problem the wrong way. Yeah. Um, as you know, to, to 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 try and solve it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Yeah. Did uh, did was Stuart a um, did he did he pay for the course or was he one of the scholarship people or whatever? No, Stuart paid for it. Because I was I was quite quite impressed with him. Mm. I mean, you know, he, he sort of you know he wears his baseball cap, hands in his pockets, and sits there, and you just kind of like oh, okay. But then, like yesterday lunchtime, um, talking to him, and he's only twenty. And uh, he suffered a bit with when he was doing his HSC, which is equivalent of your of A levels. Mm -hmm. COVID lockdown in Melbourne, brilliant. So I think that affected him a bit academically. Mm -hmm. um, and he's you know left um, left school, ended up getting into rope access. He'd quite like to join the ADF to, mm -hmm. to fly um, or be a mine clearance diver. That's something mm -hmm. he's also interested in. He's obviously gone through the diving route and as rescue diver, but he, I think he wants to go to sort of Europe for a year and just travel around and sort of find himself a bit, which is great. But you look at somebody. You know, like that. Uh, the two-day class is quite an investment, really. Yeah. And for someone in his situation to go, that looks like something useful, and throw that much money at it, yeah. it's um, quite impressive, really. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Sharp, sharp guy. Mm. Shame his team didn't listen to him. Who, me? No. <laughs> Stuart. Stuart, yeah. That guy, <coughs> excuse me, if he ends up going into the dive industry, he's going to be extremely successful. In fact, whatever he does, he's going to be... Yeah, he's a bright man. He's only 20. He's old, he is? Yep. Shit. 
and he's done. He's got the head of a thirty-five-year-old. Well, I, I thought that, yeah. yeah. And he's, I mean, he was. We were talking about um, air cadet stuff because he's he's quite keen on joining the military, and he uh, uh, was in the air, was in the Australian Air Force cadets. He's done Young Endeavour. Do you know what Young Endeavour is? I have no clue. So the Australian Navy, uh, well, Australian Defence Force, like it's run by the Navy, have got a tall ship basically called the Young Endeavour. Uh, and they run it as a, as a youth uh, development program where you can just bid for a two weeks two week slots where you just go out and sail on the ship. I think they have like I think it's up to twenty four youngsters on board. It's quite a big ship, okay. and it's staffed by or crewed rather by um, members of the navy. They just they just get to go and do a tour on it. But my um, youngest stepdaughter did it. She absolutely loved it, and um, Matt did it a couple of uh, sorry Stu did it a couple of years ago. Uh, and yeah, you know, like I say, stuff like that, stuff he's done with the air cadets, you know, he wants to learn to fly, he's done his rescue diver, he's done all this rope access stuff off his bat, uh, he wants to go and travel around Europe and America next year, just sort of finding himself a little bit before he decides what he wants to do with his life. Yeah. And you just, and as I say, you know, the investment in this course, it's it's not a cheap course to do, but mm. for, someone, for, for someone of his position to throw that much money at the problem, especially coming up to Sydney to do it, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, I, I think you're right, he'll, he'll do well in life. Yeah, for sure. Very impressed by him. Mm. And just that um, that day when I was doing the um, observing mm-hmm. and, um, you know, seeing what the... In fact, was that today? It was today, wasn't it? It was this morning. Yeah. This morning, Jesus yeah. Christ, it feels like it was days ago. Mm. Um, Try teaching back-to-back. Back. <laughs> 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 yeah, just seeing him. Was, was it, it this story? Is... When did I tell that? <laughs> yeah. 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 He's... Um, just watching what he, what he was doing. Now, he's busy doing his, his job and his ears prick up as soon as he hears an alarm on the mm-hmm. computer because it was a job that he did the day before. Mm. And he knows exactly what's going on. His, his situational awareness mm. in that time was just fantastic. Yeah, I wrote down a few little, um, you know, situational awareness tick next to, next to Stu. Just, yeah. There was quite a few little, I, I describe them as glove saves, mm. where not it wouldn't necessarily be going off piece, but you'd just be have the group would be talking about something and he'll just sort of go, oh, what about this? And, and it's just like, oh, yeah, right, that's it. Mm. Str- on the back on the straight and narrow. That happened a few times over the last couple of days. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's good. I mean, my, one of my main things that I wanted to do out of it was was to shut up a bit. Mm. It's usually quite vocal and talking all the time. It's probably why I've got a bloody podcast. Um, but it was so easy this afternoon because, you know, on team left, which was, was Stu and I, um, I, he he was just doing all the bits and pieces of controlling. I could quite happily sit there with my mouth shut yeah. and get on with my little tasks. Work, yeah. yeah, very that's, easy. That's what great. I love it. When you went, oh, what? That's bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, there's. I, I thought you got one that's a. It's a double answer question. Oh yeah. And it's something like. The the, the answer is eighty one. But there are four numbers of 81, and then the fifth one is the words 81. Mm. And people go, eh, 81, B, send, wrong. Bollocks, that's not right. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it was the, the one that got me today. And I, there was a couple like that. I thought, no, nah, fuck it, just cancel it, go on to the next one. Um, but the one that got me today was... Um, how many months have got 28 days? How many months have got 28 days? And then it was A, B, C, D, multiple guess. And it's like one, six, five, and twelve. Well, clearly they've all got it, so it's twelve. Answer done. Wrong. What? <laughs> and that's why I asked her straight at, at the end. You're like, oh, it could be multiple answer. One, five, six, and twelve. Yeah, it's all of them. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is um, how people respond. So um, when Stu got the first task, the N 4 one, he got it wrong. Yeah. 
He then spent ages trying to solve it. And yeah. I've seen that with surgeons um, where they've got it wrong. And they go, oh, bollocks this, right, I'm going to work out why I've got it. You know, what's the right answer? Yeah. And you go, it's irrelevant. Can you do anything about it? No. Yeah. Ditch it, move on. And, and we didn't actually get to that as, as one of the debrief points is if you've got something wrong and it's moved on, you know, and, it, and it, you know, there is no point in hanging around. It's the same as when you're on a dive. Mm. If something happens and you can't do anything about it, eh, irrelevant, move yeah. on. Now, it might be that something's gone wrong and you can do something about it. It's like sharing it with your team that, that something has happened. Let them know. And then, you know, as a team resource, you might be able to solve that problem. But don't get head up and frustrated about something you can't change because you've got that limited amount of attention. And if, you know, your seven light bulbs that you've got for your attention, if five of them are lit because you're pissed off because something's not <laughs> happened, that means you've got two to do everything else. Yeah. So it's that bit of, you know, move on. Yeah. And that's, that's human factors in a nutshell there, isn't it? You know, you've got those distractions. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <gasps> Squirrel. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> yeah. And it is. And, and it, it, it's that bit that's what's shiny. You know, videographers... Um, underwater photographers it's really easy to get sucked into this and i you know i used to do a fair amount of underwater photography mm. and and i went down the gue route because i wanted to be um unconsciously competent in the water uh, in the water column so i didn't have to think about the diving that i did mm. and that allowed me to take the photos i did you know a lot of close focus wide angle wreck people reef diving um and that meant that I was paying attention to what's going on around me. I'd take a few shots and have a look around, ground myself, find out where the team is, take some more pictures. Um, and so there's this bit of, oh, underwater photographers, they're crap. They just get sucked into these things. Well, yes, they can. But at the same time, they can also be good team players. Yeah. And it might be that actually that dive, the purpose of that dive, we talk about, you know, what it, what's the purpose of this? It might be an underwater photography. Shoot, that's it. Yeah. So you go in and you, you act as the buddy for the diver who's going to be task-loaded looking at some nudibranch squidge stuff. Um, yeah, I don't do wildlife. Um, People do around here. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah you'll be hated very quickly. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> I'm used to that. Do, do, do the slugs go when you press them? No, you can't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> um, and, and so there's that bit of, right, the purpose of this dive is one of those. And the next dive, it's actually my fun dive. So you're going to come with me and not get sucked into your game. So we're going to have, you know, a bit of a teamwork bit of mm. you do your bit and I'll make sure I follow and then I'll do my bit and you can follow on that side. So, again, before you get in the water, you understand that what that role is instead of just bomb burst and go, what the hell are you doing? I'm doing my thing. Oh, what? That, that means we're not going to have an enjoyable dive. Yeah. Bloody photographers. I got paired up with one of those and I didn't get to bloody see anything because all they did was sat there and looked at this thing and I couldn't see it. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed you it. You sound like my missus. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm, when I, especially I've got the macro lens on, that's it. We ain't moving far. Yeah. Well, that's fine. <laughs> and that's, you know, the pre-brief. Go in there and say, right, this is the case. Mm. And when I, I've taught scientific divers... And they've gone, yeah, but, you know, we're really busy doing a transect or a task that, that needs to be done. Um, I can't pay attention to what's going on. It's like, in that case, your diver sits on your shoulder and acts as your external set of eyes. Yeah. Yeah, but what if if they have a problem? How am I going to pay attention? It's like, 
they're close enough that if they have a problem, they punch you in the shoulder and break your concentration mm-hmm. and, and get their attention onto you. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and vice versa. So it's, again, working as that team to say, what's the purpose of what we're trying to do? Mm. My job as the safety driver is to sit close enough to you that if I have a problem, you can get hold of me. But more importantly, if you've got a problem developing, I can watch it and make sure that it doesn't get critical and we stop it from that stage. So, again, we go back to operating as a team. Yeah, yeah. Rather than the thing that you see most commonly is the buddy teams getting further and further apart. Yeah, and you ask the question, how long can you breath hold, do yeah. a breath hold swim on half a lungful? Oh, I can do like 20-odd minute, 20 odd minute. Right, okay, what about half lung? Why is that? Because you ain't going to have the opportunity <laughs> to go, now I'm going to swim. Because if that's the case, you wouldn't run out of gas. Yeah. You know, you've always got that. So it, it is that bit of how far can you swim on a half lung? Um, and that gets people concentrating a little bit more. Yeah, especially yeah. if they've had it done for real. Yeah, uh, complacency is a bugger, isn't it? Oh yeah. What was that? Um, that's just jogged my memory, actually. Complacency and what was the other word that, that are quite close? Yeah, quite close together. Yeah, yeah. You can ask me that. So I'm not going to ask you about it. You can tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just said you know complacency is just there. Yeah, and I, and I said to people, okay, so. To Matt, you know, uh, in your view, what does complacency mean? Someone who just doesn't give a shit and blasé and, you know, we, we, when you mentioned earlier on, it's the norm. Yeah. And the norm just gets stretched mm-hmm. because of complacency. Yeah. And, uh, and I would say that, you know, our brains are we're we're trying to spend as little effort as possible doing things. And that's why we don't necessarily pay attention to what's going on, because we've got a mental model of what's going to happen in the future. And that's based on our experiences. Mm. Over time, we get to recognize those patterns and we go, yeah, it's one of those. And I'm not going to think about what happens in the future. And that allows me to get things done quickly. I'm making assumptions all the time. You know, and they talk about assumptions making an ass out of you and me. Assumptions make the world go around at the pace it does. And so complacency is where we get this sort of misplaced fear or you know we we don't have a a, we don't feel there's a threat to what's going on because in the past we've recognized these patterns and and nothing's gone wrong now conversely efficiency when we're very efficient especially cognitively efficient you know mentally efficient we're not paying attention to what's going on we've got these mental patterns ago yeah it's one of those one of those one of those i'll do that the difference between efficiency and complacency then is the outcome Mm. that if we have a bad outcome, we call it complacency. But if we have a good outcome, we call it efficiency. And the mental processes are broadly the same, that we're looking for big threats. Now, fortunately, those threats don't happen very often, because otherwise we'd have lots of accidents. Yeah. So we get lulled into this false sense of security. And especially if we're rewarded for the outcomes, the good outcomes, because what we'll do is we'll keep on doing that. So. You know, if, if a, um, uh, a dive master or an instructor is managing to get things done quickly without necessarily following the processes and the rules that are there, and the dive center manager goes, hey, Matt, good on you. You're managing to get all those, fill, those, those tanks filled, um, or you're getting those students through quickly. Um, and, and it's this bit of, hey, you're being efficient. But if the proverbial hits the fan and something goes wrong and you go, you didn't check what was going on there. Mm. You were being complacent. And yet, 
your centre manager has just rewarded you for the behaviours about being efficient. Yeah. So it's understanding that these things are happening all the time, understanding what normal looks like as accidents happen, as deviations from normal, not as deviations from just these deviations from the rules that are out there. Mm-hmm. And I hope that gets people thinking about, oh, mm, well, you know, because a, a lot of this human factor stuff is about trying to think of things from a different perspective, from from the other end of the telescope as such. Yeah, yeah. And do you think, um, I mean, you've obviously got people that have done courses with you and come back time and time again or get involved with the forums on Facebook, whatever. Um, do I you have think my fans. You have the little fans. The little tribe, the cult yeah, that's there. Yeah. <laughs> They're all little old cantankerous men. <laughs> They're open-minded individuals. Yes. And that that's the, the perfect example. Uh, do you, have you found that over the years, those that have been with you for a while now have, have evolved into people that are possibly more open to the feedback loops? Um, I think, in my experience... People naturally seem to be a little bit scared of, of feedback. Mm. And we touched on it briefly earlier on with uh, super duper pilots and whatnot. But I was just wondering if you've got any kind of have you seen an evol- uh, an evolution of, of the people that have been with you for some time, um, or a change at all? I think you know people get it mm. when when they're sort of exposed. You know, it's the, the sort of trite statement of once seen, you can't unsee, mm. um, and then people. St- do start to say, look, give me that feedback. I can't improve unless you give me that feedback. And and your perception of a class or a dive or an experience is different to mine. Uh, and that's actually, you know, uh, I work really hard to try and get that feedback from, from my instructors, you know, constantly working, saying, look, I don't have the answers. I've got this sort of idea. What do you think? And if you think it's rubbish, tell me mm. and, and and at the same time i'll say okay what else can we do because i want to get your experience out there mm. and that's sometimes really hard especially for instructors who the industry you know sort of holds people on pedestals of excellence it's like society holding surgeons or judges or policemen on this pedestal of excellence airline pilots fighter pilots they're all human they all yeah. make mistakes why would a dive instructor be any different than a, a heart surgeon and that heart surgeon has started to recognize to say, you know what, the only way I get better is give me feedback. And that means you have to create the environment where it is okay to say, you know what, that was a bad decision because of X, Y, and Z. Mm. And not to sit there and go, mew, 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 and get all sort of uppity about it. And you go, if your perception is that, that is your perception. The fact that I think it's rubbish is irrelevant to the discussion. The answer is, Matt, thanks very much for that. I'll look into those conditions and how to do it. And saying it genuinely as opposed to, yeah, thanks, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how we say things. You know, that's another human <clears throat> factor bit is how we say things is often more important than what we actually say. Yeah. Uh, and getting that across. Yeah. I, I've just got flashbacks to those pie charts now. <laughs> <laughs> what, yeah. Steak and kidney pies? Steak and kidney pies. Oh, yeah. I'll murder one of those later. Uh, but before we do... Um, I think what we're going to try and do, or what I'd like to do, if you're still listening to this episode, then that means that you're really interested in human factors. Um, I would like to put out a call for anyone who's been involved in the diving uh, environment and has had 
incidents which they can reflect on and are open to come onto the show and talk about those incidents so that we can actually kind of break it down and, and look at the, the, the human factors behind the lead up to the incident. And if people are willing to come forward and do that, then they're more than more than willing to come into the studio. I'll even give you a beer. Um, but we'll get um, we'll get Mike to come down from Newcastle, and, and and we can do it together and 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 have a real proper look at it because I think this environment and this medium can give us the opportunity to learn from incidents, so that other people who are listening can actually learn from them as well. Um, it's a great idea. Yeah. It's, it's that digging into the conditions surrounding the event mm. because the conditions are likely to be sim similar. Mm. You're never going to have exactly the same event again. And that's one of the, you know, another bias that stops us from learning. You turn around and go, ah, I wouldn't make that same mistake that Matt's done because I'm different in whatever way that is. I've done different training. I use a bit of different equipment. Um, it's different in, you know, environment. Um, it wouldn't happen to me. Mm. But actually, if we look at those precursors, those conditions, then actually that's where you can draw the parallels and go, you know what? I'm now in a time stress situation. I've got somebody nagging me about stuff. I've got stuff that's happened at home that's playing on my mind. Hmm. Maybe this is a time that I probably need to back off. Because mm. we say, you know, anybody can thumb a dive at any time for any reason. Yeah. And it's a great statement. It's really quite hard to do in reality. But at least if you trigger that thought process, you go, hmm, maybe we then up our attention and focus on critical elements that, you know, we that we can't undo. You yeah. know, if making sure that, you know, say, double sure that the checks are in place. And it might be that we actually have a team check rather than an individual check mm. because my, my head's not necessarily in the right place. And that's it. You know, it, 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 and you touched on it earlier on. We're all human. And it doesn't matter. I mean, that call goes out for anyone, whether you're an open water diver or someone who's a course director, instructor, trainer of 30, 35 years, I don't give a shit. If you've got something there that you're willing to talk about so we can actually look at the scenario and what leads up to that situation, you know, if your head's in a different place and you just miss a simple check, that can have the knock-on effect. And I think the only way that people learn is by listening to these kind of stories that have occurred to other people and take the learning from that situation and then be able to apply it to their own situations in future touch wood you know it's not anything disastrous and it doesn't need to be anything disastrous yeah. that we're looking for just simple mistakes so yeah it's better to learn from incidents that didn't necessarily result in a tragedy you know, tragedy because they're often therefore is no legal pressures to sort of keep people um from telling the, telling the stories the, yeah. the near misses are the better stories to learn from yeah so anything yeah. like that absolutely perfect yeah i'm more than willing to tell you the numerous times i've run out of air i don't care um but we've used one of those I've, we've spoke about one of those yesterday actually did, yeah. mm. and you know learning takes place which is perfect yeah definitely and um yeah gareth gareth has kindly put up a bit of a um, bit of a discount on the um, what's the proper title again? Essentials. Uh, Essentials of human factors in diving, which is a three and a half hour program in five ten minute bite chunks. Mm. Um, that you know people go, ah, oh, I'm travelling, I can't get access to it. It's available to download the videos as well. Yeah. Um, and the additional learning that's there, it's yes, it's video based, but there's a whole bunch of additional stuff. Mm. And there's a key case study that runs through it. Um, that challenges people's thoughts yeah. um, to, to get that across. So, yeah, and uh, the discount code of ScubaGoat2022 uh, will give you 20% off the class. Awesome.
And and just to add to that, I did that course as a pre-learner before doing the, the two-day course I've just done. And it is very comfortable, bite-sized chunks, and it's all online, um, easy videos. Um, you just got to put up with the torture of, of looking at Gareth all the time. Um, but if you can get over that, then it's well worth doing. And at the, the price that you can get, get on it as well, it's a, it's a, it's a steal. We'll, um, we'll put a link into the, the show notes. Um, so just follow that link and use Scuba Goat 2022. Get your discount. Uh, gents. And they said, ladies and gents, they're looking at you, Mike. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm going to Royal Marines in here. <laughs> Not to culturally stereotype or anything. No. <laughs> gents, thank you so much for the last couple of days. And thanks for coming into the studio. And uh, I, I wish you well. And safe journeys back to the UK for yourself as well, Gareth. Thank and you uh, I'll great. see you again in October. Oztech. Um Ladies and gents, thank you for listening. And uh, bye for now. Brilliant. Cheers. Thanks very much, Matt. Thanks, Matt. This is Scuba Goat Under the Sea, the podcast for the inquisitive diver.